0: A roundup of the main business news from China and elsewhere. This is Global Business.
1: From CGTN headquarters here in Beijing, this is Global Business. I'm Shiavan coming up on the program. Chinese President Xi Jinping arrives in San Francisco for the China-U.S. summit and APEC economic leaders meeting. APEC ministers explore strategies for sustainable free trade amid climate change and trade challenges. China's October economic activity shows positive growth, boosting economic outlook. Chinese President Xi Jinping has arrived in San Francisco. He's said to hold bilateral talks with his American counterpart Joe Biden, as well as attend this year's APEC economic leaders' meeting. CGTN's Zhao Yunfei reports.
2: Chinese President Xi Jinping has kicked out his four-day visit to San Francisco. He has just landed here at San Francisco International Airport. The Chinese president is welcomed by U.S. Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, California Governor Gavin Newsom. President Xi's visit is at the invitation of U.S. President Joe Biden. Beijing says the two leaders will have in-depth communication on issues of strategic, overarching and fundamental importance in shaping China-U.S. relations and major issues concerning world peace and development. Key topics could include the Taiwan question, the South China Sea issue, and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. The last face-to-face meeting between the two leaders was on the sidelines of the G20 summit last year in Bali, Indonesia. However, 2022 proved difficult for the ties between the two countries, with the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan badly straining relations. But optimism slowly crept up this year. Beijing and Washington have re-established communication and maintained frequent interactions across various sectors in recent months, setting new conditions for the upcoming talks between the two leaders. The world is watching whether the two heads of state can carry on the outcome of Bali and make new developments in bilateral ties in San Francisco. U.S. officials, think tank experts, and entrepreneurs have welcomed President Xi's visit.
1: I get excited when I see the leader of China and the leader of the United States putting aside all of the differences and the geopolitical challenges that their teams are discussing on a regular basis to sit down at APEC because they recognize the importance
3: of these type, this type of engagement. And this has been a period of remarkable engagement, really historic over the last few years. So I, I'm really encouraged and I, I feel hopeful Uh, there's going to be some good progress coming out of this.
2: President Xi is welcomed by local Chinese compatriots on his way to downtown San Francisco. The Chinese president will also attend a series of events during the APAC week, aiming to find common ground with leaders from Asia-Pacific economic entities. It's another commitment from the world's second largest economy, signifying its dedication to building a community of a shared future. Zhao Yunfei, CGTN, San Francisco.
1: APEC annual ministerial meeting is underway in San Francisco. Senior officials from 21 member economies have gathered for talks chaired by the U.S. Secretary of State and the U.S. Trade Representative. CGTN's Hendrik Sembrandi has more on some of the issues that are front and center.
4: It's the third time the U.S. has hosted APEC, and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he hopes the third time's the charm. While magic breakthroughs may be too much to hope for at this summit, Blinken and his fellow ministers hope to make headway on some key issues. To see APEC ministers gather is to see up close the importance that one-on-one relationships play in tackling a world that's ever more complex and challenging. The stakes are huge. APEC economies represent 62 percent of global GDP and nearly half of global trade. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says APEC should build on its long track record of economic success.
3: Each of us has experienced remarkable reciprocal benefits from greater trade and investment within the Asia-Pacific region. At the same time, we continue to face many economic challenges.
4: Like he says, the lingering dislocations of COVID, the climate crisis which continues to upend supply chains and destroy crops, and the conflict in Ukraine, which Blinken says has undermined food and energy security.
3: We have to meet this moment head-on. That's why the United States chose to focus our host year on creating a resilient
4: and sustainable future for all. He says three priorities are key. Interconnectedness, innovation, and inclusivity. From those fragile supply chains to geopolitical tensions, the U.S. side suggests it's time to think out of the box for possible solutions.
5: These hurdles in our midst do pose a threat, but they also present an opportunity to assess where we are. To think creatively, to bring our strengths together, to sketch out the future that we want to see and experience.
4: Key to all of this, of course, are discussions between the world's two largest economies, the U.S. and China. Leaders of the two countries are set to meet. China is eager to address U.S. export controls and tariffs. The U.S. has complaints about the Chinese economy, and that's certainly on the minds of these ministers as well. Hendrik Sabrandi, CGTN, San Francisco.
1: As Indonesia enters a new era in transportation, the Jakarta Bandung high-speed train stands out as a symbol of progress. The train is set to revolutionize the local way of life. And our Sakina Alualia explores the transformative impact it is expected to
6: have on the region. This is a new weekend routine for Elizabeth. She's a Jakarta resident, and her parents live in West Java's capital, Bandung. Elizabeth usually visits them once a month because she says the trip would take her at least three to four hours. But now she can visit them every weekend thanks to Woosh, Southeast Asia's first high-speed train. It's
5: very helpful for me. I'm looking forward for more facilities
6: to be added. My only concern is the ticket price. It's still quite expensive for me, but anyway, the normal train would take me three hours. So of course, this is huge time saver and preferable. Millions of Indonesians share Elizabeth's story. The Indonesian government say this project is transformational. Its main goal is connectivity, but it's also fueling economic growth and social change.
7: The
2: fast train would certainly boost the economy's new small town in West Java. But to maximize the potential of the Jakarta Bandung down fast train, the government must continue to push and invest in these new towns for them to grow even further. And with the possible extension of this train to other bigger cities, we'll begin to see more small towns flourishing within Indonesia. What makes WUSH also
6: promising is its commitment to a greener future. The train uses electrical energy to reduce carbon emissions. And this aligns perfectly with President Joko Widodo's vision to reduce Indonesia's carbon footprint. The country is aiming to be carbon neutral and reach net zero emissions by 2060. This ambitious project cost 7.3 billion US dollars, and it's part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. This train stands as a testament to the Chinese and Indonesian spirit. It's faster, resilient, and inclusive towards a thriving future. Sulkina Alawalia, CGTN, Jakarta. Now, for more
1: on the APEC meeting and regional cooperation, let's cross to our reporter, in uh, Reporter Robberlin Perba in Jakarta. Hi there, Robberlin. So what has been the main focus of the APEC meetings and what are the highlights of China-Indonesia infrastructure cooperation?
2: Yes, now, um, Indonesia's Finance minister, uh, Suri Mulyani, is attending the APEC meetings and uh, she says that although China have experienced weakened a domestic economy, specifically in property, Indonesia is learning a, a lot for, uh, for uh, covid post COVID recovery um, and also post um, uh, economic recovery for energy and food uh, security as well. And in Asia in the forums have also uh, shared their experience in the forums to improve economy um, uh, specifically in the human resources um, and also education um, and health and also in infrastructure funding.
1: All right, thank you so much for the update. Robert Limperba for us in Jakarta. As energy prices and inflation pose challenges to the world economy, the Asia-Pacific region is emerging as a resilient force and is becoming a key driver for the global economy on its path to recovery. Our reporter Su Xinbo provides the details.
5: Economic growth in the Asia-Pacific region remains robust. According to a recent report from the International Monetary Fund, the region's growth is expected to increase from 3.9% in 2022 to 4.6% this year, consistent with the forecast made in April of the previous year. Emerging economies in the Asia-Pacific are projected to grow by 5.3%, contributing over two-thirds of the total global economic growth for the year. The IMF attributes this growth to China's economic recovery, with every percentage point of China's growth leading to a 0.3% increase in output in the rest of Asia. As more Asia-Pacific countries restore economic dynamism, the region becomes a crucial fulcrum for pulling the world economies out of difficulties. Inflation in the region is under control and expected to fall to the target range of 3.5% by 2024. Additionally, the manufacturing and tourism sectors show strong momentum, driven by China's resurgent demand since the beginning of this year. Organizations like AIPAC continue to serve as channels to enhance regional cohesion and resist conflicts. The Asia-Pacific countries are poised to act as a stabilizer for world development. Su Xingbo, CJTM, Beijing.
1: China as the leading exporter and second largest importer within APEC economies has been strengthening its economic collaboration with the 21 member countries. Kevin Ali, co-chair of the private sector host committee, highlighted that China is actively encouraging innovation and has a welcoming approach. He also expressed optimism that the upcoming China-U.S. meeting will convey a positive message to the international community
5: you just went to shanghai right in yes. september yes yeah shanghai is a very prominent healthcare hub were there any innovative medical methods or innovative labs that really impressed you
3: well juju I, I i'm really glad you brought that up because that was just a recent visit in september as you say i had a wonderful opportunity to have a meeting a sit-down meeting a long one with mayor gong of uh, of uh, shanghai and it's not often that ceos actually have a chance to meet him we talked about the opportunities to work closer together as a company and as Shanghai. Shanghai is our home, and what we're doing right now is working with a lot of Chinese companies in the biotech space to work together for China for China strategies, to work together, or China for the world strategies. So we see China emerging in terms of a hub for innovation and biotech. A number of other different areas, there's some really interesting assets that are in the area of women's health and assets that are in the areas of kind of what I would call uh, outside of women's health but still touch the area of women's health uh, innovation. And so we've done a couple of deals, one actually with a company called Henlius, which is a well-known biotech company. We talked about moving uh, manufacturing facilities into China. We talked about a number of different uh, initiatives around fertility Mm -hmm. investments, because there's a lot of things being done in Beijing right now for fertility support. But I think Shanghai, Mayor Gong, is also very interested in being able to address that issue. So, um, you know, Shanghai is incredibly uh, dynamic uh, and incredibly uh, innovative and there's a lot of investments going on right there And we, it's our second largest market so we have a lot of investments
5: Yeah, and how is our organic planning to work with these advanced research institutions or those medical? Uh, organizations that you mentioned in Shanghai to boost our prosperity and health care in the broader Asia Pacific region
3: well, I think it's in I think it's in the the, the, the interests of the Chinese government as well as the Shanghai province to create an environment where the world can see some of the innovation that China actually brings to the table. Mm -hmm. Because it's always been to some extent where innovations have come into China, Mm -hmm. and now we need to see kind of, especially in the healthcare field, innovations from China going out to the rest of the world. I'll give you an example of an innovation that came into China. Mm -hmm. I, at that time, was was working in another company, and I got a call uh, in the middle of the night to come to China to to, to negotiate for bringing human papillomavirus HPV vaccine Gardasil to China. Um, the Chinese government was amazing. It sprung into action and what usually sometimes takes four or five years to get regulatory approval, they did it in nine days. Subsequent to that, millions of women have been vaccinated against HPV in China. And so that's an example of innovations coming into China. Now we need to take innovations from China outside to the rest of the world to have the same type of impact. Uh, it's great to have President Xi here along with President Biden. We met actually recently with the vice president of China in New York in conjunction with the uh, United Nations meeting. There was a number of CEOs. The one thing we said to him is it would be wonderful to have President Xi here because then it will send a signal to the rest of the world that we're on a good path.
1: Now for more discussions on the APEC meetings and its impact on the Asia-Pacific region, we're joined by Rani Jakas, a chairman and member of the board at uh, CedRA group. Thank you so much, Rani, for joining us. So as we look forward to the APEC meetings, what are your expectations regarding its impact on regional economic cooperation and as well as addressing key issues?
0: I think uh, we hope and we expect the APEC meeting to be extremely successful and productive and contributing to uh, collaboration and cooperation between many governments and economies. Uh, in the world to better, to better advance uh, many of the technologies and many of uh, infrastructure deals in the future. As you know, the time now is very important because many countries have been trying to be more protectionist. So I think I hope that with dialogue and meeting face-to-face that uh, these countries will, uh, will be able to cooperate better for the future as the growth is usually in APAC and shifting to APEC globally, as you know.
1: And considering the important bilateral meetings during the APEC uh, summit, uh, what do you anticipate in terms of their contribution to promoting, like you mentioned, connectivity, high quality development, and also sustainable sustainable growth in the Asia Pacific region?
0: I think uh, Asia Pacific has a significant amount of growth uh, coming up in the in the future, and uh, many uh, countries and. Uh, uh, governments are looking for a great cooperation, and that's led by China. China is the engine of growth in Asia uh, uh, for all the ASEAN countries also, too. I, we expect uh, to have general uh, multilateral bi- uh, talks, some bilateral talks also, too, to to, uh, to increase cooperation and uh, put many issues outside the economical cooperation on the side in order to achieve uh, growth, uh, infrastructure projects, and uh, more trading on that. Especially now, as the global economy is slowing down uh, globally with higher inflation, I think... uh Uh, good talks and good collaboration face-to-face is always helpful uh, for economic development.
1: Thank you so much for your insights. Really appreciate your time. Rani Jarkas, chairman and member of the board at CEDRAS Group.
7: I am Alka Acharya.
2: I teach at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in India. Today has uh, organized its programs and uh, it rests on uh, bringing in a lot of views uh, from all over it is an extremely good platform for uh, information and analysis and i wish it all success in the future
4: weekly debates in-depth analysis expert views and opinion on the biggest news stories from China and around the world, this is Today, your unique window of the world, direct from Beijing, weekdays on newsplusradio.cn.
1: Next, let's take a look at some key economic indicators in China in October Um, economic activity shows signs of improvement, indicating a sustained recovery. According to data from the National Bureau of Statistics, uh, China's industrial output grew by 4.6% year-on-year, a slight increase compared to the previous month. Investment in fixed assets from January to October reached nearly 42 trillion yuan, representing a nearly 3% year-on-year increase. Retail sales of consumer goods in October amounted to 4.3 trillion yuan. Overall employment remained relatively stable during this period. Now for more on the latest economic data, we're joined by Ho Jing in the studio. Ho Jing, take it away.
8: Thank you, Michelle. This morning, the National Bureau of Statistics released its latest data on China's economy. In October, macroeconomic control policies continued to have a positive impact production and supply remained stable, market demand continued to improve, employment rates also remained stable. The transformation and upgrading continued and the overall uh, national economy continued to recover and improve. Let's look at some of the numbers. In October, the nationwide added value of industries above designated size increased by 4.6% year with 0.1 percentage points faster than the previous month. The total import and export volume of goods increased by 0.9% year-on-year. From January to October, national fixed assets investment was 41.9 trillion yuan, or 5.8 trillion U.S. dollars, up 2.9% year-on-year. Overall employment remained stable, and the urban unemployment rate was 5%, 5%. Back to you, Michelle.
1: Thank you very much, Ho Jing, for that. Now, for more discussions on China's key economic data and its economic growth, we're joined by Liu Zhixin, Senior Fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies of Renmin University of China. Uh, now, Professor Liu, given that uh, China requires a 4.4% growth in the fourth quarter to achieve the 5% growth target for this year, what's your outlook for the fourth quarter GDP?
7: I should say that uh, the... A uh, gap between 4.4 percent and 5 percent is not so big, and I could be very well that uh, satisfied by the end of this year because of uh, two reasons. The first reason is that uh, the cons- con- consumption field, because consumption including industrial consumption and uh, private consumption, that is uh, people's consumption, in the past eight months that we see the both. Uh, index are really increased uh, strongly especially for industrial consumption is very strong for the manufacturing outboard and the industrial output the supply chain is well managed and monitored in the past months so we see the good basis to further cons- consumer by the industrial uh, section the second is the people's consumption by the end of the year we have many uh, occasional and seasons and good reasons that to have more consumption especially in during the November, we see the high uh, shopping center, the festival and the gala. So we see a, a great uh, the potential has been really released by the uh, time at the moment. So we see the first quarter, the outlook is quite positive. I'm very optimistic. I think we can uh, achieve uh, at least more than five 5.2%. Uh, that is 5.2% for the fourth quarter so we can really uh, set clearly that uh, uh, fulfill our target for this year's GDP.
1: Wow. Um, now it's also been observed that um, several international institutes have revised their forecast for China's economic growth for this year and the next. What factors do you think contribute to this upward adjustment in their growth forecasts?
7: Sometimes we take this uh, forecast of the international organizations for China's economic development as uh, uh, the barometer to see that uh, what could be happening in the future, what uh, problem the problems and challenges we are facing. But at the moment, we can see all these international uh, institutions have positive uh, forecast for China's uh, economic development. I think we we should be satisfied with the three bases. First is that the policy, the second is the stabilization of the market, and the third is very strong, that the momentum for potential uh, industrial output is very strong also in China. So, those three factors, especially from the policy aspect, we can see that China adopted really a serious, very uh, prudent and cautious, but uh, uh, less aggressive policy in order to stabilize our Uh, economic development as a whole and for the global market they are more focusing to see whether China's economic uh, landscape is very stable, this is very important, the second is really the potential resisting there the two factors are still there that we have great uh, stability and for policy and also for the uh, market development and opening up and the third is quite a very uh, uh, attractive that is the potential of, of the market because China's domestic circulation is much better than others. This factor is uh, really a good booster for the economic development because we have uh, two strong uh, improving uh, economic engines. One is the consumption, the other is the innovation. From both sides it will be exploded I think in the first quarter. That's why the international institution have uh, positive and adjusted their upward forecast about China's future development.
1: Alright, thank you so much for your insights. Really appreciate your time. Liu Zhijin, Senior Fellow of the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. China has been actively involved in supporting African countries in enhancing their agriculture industry through initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative and forums on China-Africa cooperation. Through the provision of technical assistance, China assists African nations in expanding their food crop cultivation, increasing agricultural output and the value of agricultural products, and promoting the modernization of African agriculture. Hang Renjian, the Minister of Agriculture and Rural Affairs, revealed at the second China-Africa Agricultural Cooperation Forum that the agricultural trade volume between China and Africa is projected to exceed $10 billion by 2023, nearly doubling the amount recorded 10 years earlier. China aims to surpass $20 billion in agricultural trade volume with Africa in the next decade and encourages more businesses to invest in Africa Africa's agricultural sector through joint ventures and cooperation.
0: China as a major producer of agricultural machinery and manufacturer <clears throat> and manufacture and export equipment and technology to Africa contributing to mechanizations and increased efficiency in farming opportunities. It is important for both parties to establish Clear frameworks for collaboration address regulatory considerations and promote sustainable practices in agriculture and the agri-food sector. I think uh, you know now, uh, Africa uh, side, they need investment. They need transit investment as productivity. Uh, How to do it? China has a good experience in the past uh, decades. We uh, got a lot of. Experience in some, especially in finance, with a low cost financial institution to support agriculture, especially the farmers, small farmers, they can easily access uh, lower cost finance.
1: And that will do it for this edition of Global Business. I'm Jeff in Beijing. Bye for now.